Uh, thank you so much for staying for this, to hear about this truly extraordinary book called Grimish. It is always a pleasure to talk to an award-winning writer. And that pleasure is mine, not Michael's. I've won nothing. The last thing I won was a meat raffle in West Wyalong in 1987. <laughs> Still pretty high about that, actually. Um, Michael is a, an author, a co-author, an editor, a non-fiction writer, a fiction writer, a journalist. Is that the same thing? <laughs> and a reviewer. <clears throat> so, all in all, he is an extraordinary writer. So, Michael, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks, Robert. Now, I would like to start at the very beginning because if Julie Andrews has taught us anything, it's that that is a very good place to start. <laughs> so, Michael, where the hell did this extraordinary book... I hesitate to call it a novel. We'll come to what it is. But where did this extraordinary book come from? That's an extraordinarily good question. Um, it came from uh, my interest in the story that underpins the book, which is the, the true story of a man called Joe Grimm, um, who was a boxer who was born in Italy and um, his family moved to the USA when he was 10. Um, and he... How did you find out about him? I think... Look, I, I don't know. I, I, I knew about him when I was a, a kid. Um, I'd read about him um, because what made him phenomenal was that he had this ability to withstand physical punishment uh, unlike any other boxer in history and, and therefore probably unlike any sports person in, um, in, in the history of the, the recorded world. Um, and I was fascinated by the fact that he came to Australia in 1908 and 09, and I thought that I would like to write a non-fiction book about that. And then uh, my research very quickly uh, exhausted itself, and then I was left wondering what to do. And so I ended up so filling in the gaps with everything else that's in that book. So this is what happened. Hmm. Um, I'm going to have to check my notes because I, I don't want to change your words because they are so beautiful you ask yourself this question on page 39 <laughs> why write a book about pain when there are many sunny aspects of the human condition that would be that could be written about instead so i ask you michael winkler <laughs> explain yourself <laughs> why indeed <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know Robert. <laughs> um because pain's something that we all experience and some people probably experience a lot more of it than others. Uh, What's the name for the condition where people don't feel pain? It'd be the opposite of anhedonia, wouldn't it? Um, I don't know. Does anyone know? You know because you wrote about it. Oh, did I? <laughs> yes. It's called... Dead. <laughs> it's called asymbolia, is okay. it? Yeah, asymbolia, mm. where you don't feel pain is unpleasantness. Yeah, which is pretty rare. Um, most of us experience pain and um, some people experience a lot of pain. Last Monday I had a doozy of a migraine and um, many people migraine sufferers. No one. Oh, yes. <laughs> More than twice as many women as men. Um, and you do they do become less severe and less frequent as you get older. So it's one of the few... Uh, 
benefits of aging. But yes, I have a migraine that I could could have whimpered with the pain. And uh, you know, we all it's part of the human condition. We can't escape pain, but I probably fear it as much as everyone else does. So so why go into this project where the thing you fear most is the thing you want to write about with such clarity um, and in such gorgeous, grotesquely gorgeous prose? I think we're attracted to the things that, that terrify us. I'm not. You're not? <laughs> <laughs> no. What are you attracted to? Things that don't terrify me. <laughs> nice things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's not that many books out there about pain. No. And so it was that, that was also <laughs> something of interest that this was fertile and fertile ground to, to explore, I suppose. Um, now you, you call this book um, an exploded non-fiction novel. What, what do you mean by that? Well, it, <laughs> the books faced many hurdles, but the, the first and most obvious hurdle is people say, so is it a novel? No. Is it non-fiction? No. There's a little bit of memoir. There's a bit of, yeah. It's a, it's like a scrapbook almost. Um, there's stuff pitchforked in from everywhere. Um, and I don't know where do you think it sits. I, bookshops don't know where to put it on the shelf. Yeah, it's it is unique. I um, think, which is its glory. There's no question about about that. But you, you're not happy just to sit with saying it's an exploded nonfiction novel. You then have to tear down your own description <laughs> by saying, it's something I'm pretending is innovative and radical. Talk us through your sense <laughs> of yourself, Michael. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> in hindsight, I should have done less of that. <laughs> there was probably too much self-deprecation and, um, and too much internal criticism. Um, one of the things that interested me in trying to write it was I, because I had so few facts to actually fall back on that I was actually having to make up a lot of this stuff, it was interesting to me to, to think where those ideas would come from, um, what things I'd read or what things I'd experienced or thought. And so I suppose that was the idea of the exploded part, to try to play very fair with the reader uh, by actually explaining where these... Um, uh, fictional conceits that come from. Um, but there's an incredible intellectual rigour to this book and research rigour to this book. It's got a lot of footnotes. I love a good footnote. <laughs> um, so th this, this really does read like a beautifully researched piece of non-fiction until you get to the goat. <laughs> Please, the goat... W-T-F. <laughs> People love the goat. I know. Uh, um, I Tell us about the goat. Look, I am uneasy with that thing that writers say where they say, oh, you know, and this character just invented itself and I, had, I just couldn't control it. I just had to be there. But that was sort of like that with the goat. So there's a long scene in the desert in central Australia um, and there's the narrator and there's Joe Grimm and it was supposed to be a long period of exposition, basically, um, filling in the backstory. And I didn't want it just to be the two of us talking back and forth in dialogue like a two-hander play. I wanted a non-simpatico third character. And 
for whatever reason, it turned out to be the talking goat. So <laughs> <laughs> the very profane talking goat, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the goat is very sweary, which I like. Um, I would like you to read a passage just to give people a sense of your prose and uh, the poetry in your prose, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, this is a scene in a church where Joe Grimm is in the in a country town. Um, oh, the other thing I love about this book, Michael, is that it takes you in so many completely unexpected directions and one of them is just beautiful, beautiful pastoral writing. Where does that come from? It's like Joseph Furphy on crack. <laughs> it's really beautiful and completely well, unexpected in a novel that is or a book that is ostensibly about a pain-eating boxer but suddenly you're in this beautiful pastoral world of um australia mm. and in this this thing happens in this small country town and joe is in a church sitting behind a woman and this is what he does if you could read that I feel more uneasy now knowing that there's people in this uh, in this room who've been married by my grandfather because uh, <laughs> I grew up um, attending a lot of country churches. I grew up in the country and right. um, my grandfather was a Methodist minister and then right. later a United Church minister and uh, he in fact presided over the wedding of, uh, of Richard and Ruth. So, oh, yes. Right. It's probably not as alarming as being married to your grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> um Leaning forward again, swooning towards Mrs. Etteridge, that peculiar nausea, and for a microsecond, just, his tongue emerges quick as a gecko and he laps the moisture from the back of her neck. A single darting upsweep, and she stiffens, and then her hand comes up to feel the place where his tongue was moments before, but she doesn't turn her head. And Grimm sinks back and screws his eyes tight closed and no one says a word and perhaps nothing was noticed or known and the sermon trudges on. He tastes her salts on his tongue, can still smell the moist hair, her aroma inside his nostrils. He tries to relax his jaw, his shoulders, his mind. Staring at the cross high on the forward wall, there is no question that he could have breezed through the whipping and the scourging would not have flinched as the thorns and the crude crown punctured his scalp, perhaps could have stood the hammering of the huge square-headed nails through his wrists and his ankles. But what then? Could he have borne the crucifixion any better than Christ did? He thinks on it, tongue running around the outside of his lips as he tries to calculate the weight of the agony, factoring in the brutes breaking Jesus' legs and piercing his side and the length of time there with all of his broken body collapsing against those three shocking metal spikes. And he decides that no, if Christ could not, he could not. That is so wonderful. <clears throat> and it's a little bit creepy. But this novel, you see, I bring to this novel a completely different sensibility uh, from the sensibility that you bring because you, you have a Methodist upbringing that passage to me just reeks of Catholicism. How do you see that? There's also another fantastic scene where you've got one of the narrators, who may well be all avatars of you, perhaps, 
but one of the narrators washes Joe Grimm's feet. And it's very Mary Magdalene. I'm glad you got that reference. <laughs> yes, that, that was the idea. It's yeah. very Mary Magdalene. Mm. So is this kind of... I don't really associate this kind of gothic uh, representation with um, anything other than, you know... Catholicism. Hardcore Catholicism. Well, you would... Because Protestant churches always look to me like they've been burgled. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, but we sang a lot better than the Catholics did. So, um, I can't argue with that. Uh, I, I would assume that Grimm grew up Catholic. He grew up in, in Avellino uh, in, in Italy. And um, there's a scene earlier in the book um, in, in front of the Avellino Cathedral where he's bashing his head against the cathedral doors to uh, get money from passes by and it's very 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 hard to find out what is truth and what's apocrypha in terms of the very slim um, evidence about his life but there is one report that he in fact did that so I assume he was Catholic um, the whole sort of Saint Sebastian um, torture of the flesh stuff mm-hmm. um, the, 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 the you, you, you shy away in this novel, probably consciously, mm. from any sense that his pain eating is fetishised in any kind of sadomasochistic sexual way. Someone said to me when I told them about the book, was, oh, so he was a masochist. And it's like, well, I mean, maybe he was, but if he was, that's not all that interesting to me. Um, maybe it's because I'm so old that... Um, sexual explanations are of less interest to me than than ever before. I think other explanations for his behaviour and his being how and who he was uh, are probably more interesting to me. Yeah. Just as a little segue, do you know that at the foot of the cross, I only found this out a fortnight ago, the, you know, Christ is, is the, the Roman soldiers, he says, I thirst... And the Roman soldiers put a sponge dipped in vinegar up to his mouth as a kind of um, insult. And it never occurred to me what that actually meant. Why was there a sponge? Why was there vinegar? And Roman soldiers carried sponges and vinegar wherever they went because that was their toilet paper. And that's why it's it's even more kind of humiliating. I was never taught that at school. Another failing of the Christian brothers. <laughs> Chalk them up. <laughs> Possibly not the greatest failing, but um, that's uh, that's fascinating. It's, yeah. it's up there. Yeah. It is up there. <laughs> now, my, 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 Michael, there, there's a really um, beautiful connection in two parts of the novel, which is clearly deliberate because you use exactly the same expression. At one point, you have this kind of um, excoriating but beautifully written piece about how uh, how difficult writing is, and your your wife, your either your real wife or your fictional wife, but the person in this it's book, my, it's my real wife. <laughs> your wife says, "What you're doing, Michael, is absurd, but it is not stupid." And then further along in the book, Joe Grimm has a moment with the woman whose neck he has licked. He says to her, I am stupid. And she says to him, you are absurd. 
you are not stupid. Now, are you suggesting that having the shit beaten out of you as a boxer and being a writer is a distinction without a difference? <laughs> there's similarities, Robert. <laughs> there's similarities. There's, there's writers here today, including one on stage, who... Um, have, have been a lot more successful than I. And I, I don't know if, if you have that sort of success, whether it feels less absurd. Um, but certainly my creative writing career has tended to be a, a litany of failure. If, if you're producing if, beautiful work like this, what do you understand um, by so, failure? So by failure, um, success to me means communication. So that means finding readers apart from yourself and so not getting things published or not getting things out into into the world is 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 failing in, in those terms um so people say to me oh you know just write for yourself that's all right but that would be a different thing i'm writing to try to jump over that gap and communicate something to someone and have a some sort of conversation with a reader not every reader reads as closely as you do and I, um, I thank you for it. Yeah. Um, I love a good sentence. <laughs> I, I love a good sentence. I'm much more interested in books at a sentence level than even a plot level. Give me a good sentence and, you know, I'm yours. Um, I don't like sentences that don't have verbs. I know I've said that a thousand times but I can't stand them. Um, there are so many side alleys to go down in this book, Michael. It's hard to know exactly um, what to talk about because there are so many things that you touch on, especially in the footnotes. And it, when you read this book, I would encourage you, do not ignore the footnotes. They are brilliant. And there's one where you talk just very briefly about an, a subject that interests me where you say that you talk about Robert Lowell, the American poet, and you say that he was he had all kinds of mental health issues but also basically he was a, a bit of an asshole in his private life the way he treated women especially he was frankly an asshole but you say in the footnote however he wrote skunk hour one of my favorite poems and memories of west street and lepke and then you say so it's all okay now this is something that interests me does the especially with the current uh, obsession with cancel culture does the life the private life of the artist need to be taken into account when we examine his or her work whether it be prose or painting could you start me on an easier one <laughs> Um, Peter, Kerry. I don't know where I stand on this issue yet. <laughs> no, I neither do I. I haven't That's made up my. I have not made up my mind. Peter Carey was asked the same question in today's paper, and he he firmly comes down on the side of the work. Um, well, he would because he's got three ex wives. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I don't. It's know. hard, isn't it? It is really, really, really hard. And I mean, I'm a grudgy, punitive sort of person. So, <laughs> so if I don't like someone, I'm going to find it really hard to like their work. Um, but we but, excuse. But I, I never met Robert Lowell. You know, if, no. if I'd met him and seen his behaviour, yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's enormously, enormously, enormously hard. Yeah. You know? What do yeah. we do with Donald Friend? What do we do with... Um, <laughs> 
half the canon, you know. Yeah. There's been a lot of bad people write a lot of good books. And yeah. I don't know. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. I would also say that there's so many books out there that it's also possible to find good books by good people. So, you know, maybe that's where we should be. Yeah, I'm attention. just I'm very suspicious of the whole program of digging around in people's private lives and then finding a reason to cancel them. I'm particularly annoyed by um, uh, Hannah Gadsby, who, who I otherwise really like, but her program to stop people looking at Picasso, for example, because there's no question Picasso was a notorious misogynist and a, a vile person in his private life. But at the same time, um, at one point Hannah said that her favourite painting in the world is the Arnolfini portrait by Jan van Eyck, which is a really stunningly beautiful portrait, done in, I think, 1430 or thereabouts. But the only reason you can say that is because we know nothing <laughs> about Jan van Eyck. Mm. And so if you then find out, having said it's your favourite painting in the world, if you then find out that Jan van Eyck was a pedophile, say... How does that go from being your favourite painting in the world to being something you can't look at? Yeah, I don't know. I, I know. I, I haven't. <laughs> I just. I haven't made up. I no, haven't made up. I, I worked as a radio producer for a while in ABC Radio, and radio is such a personal medium. Mm. And people would come up to me and say, "Oh, I love such and such. What are they like?" And you think, "Will I tell you?" <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's. It's tricky. Anyway, that's a kind of a side sidebar. Um, one other interesting thing I learned in your book was the story of Jack Johnson, who I only vaguely knew about. He's on the periphery of my knowledge, but I didn't know very much about him. And I certainly didn't know that he came to Australia and fought in Sydney. Can you tell us a bit about him? So that's a really interesting... It's an incredibly important story. Um uh, so Jack Johnson was an African American from um, sort of southern states of the U.S. and um, a great big, tall, amazing physical specimen. Um, and uh, in the history of organised boxing, there'd never been a white man fight a black man for the world heavyweight championship. And um, the heavyweight champion uh, Tommy Burns, who was a Canadian. Um, and in racist in his own way, decided for his own reasons to um, to fight Jack Johnson, that he would what they then called cross the colour bar. Um, and it took place in Sydney on, on Boxing Day in 1908. Um, they had to go to the other side of the world to, um, to hold such an event because if it was held in North America, the whole place would have been burnt down. Um, it was just uh, it was an unforgivable sin to give a an African American man an opportunity at winning the most prestigious title in in world sport. And so, yeah, they were in Sydney, and Joe Grimm, the real life Joe Grimm, uh, was a sparring partner for both of them. Um, and there's actually very grainy um, film footage of. Uh, Jack Johnson training and also Tommy Burns training and I can't spot Joe Grimm in the background but he, he may have been there but I'm fascinated by what it would have been like to be a you know 
six foot three, six foot four African American with a shaven head walking around Sydney, um, which was, you know, I mean, <laughs> Australia in nineteen oh eight wouldn't have been a uh, a place famous for its racial harmony, um, and yes, and Jack Johnson um, not only defeated. Tommy Burns, but but humiliated him. He, he basically prolonged the fight um, to torment this um, reasonably diminutive um, white champion. And then, you know, history is full of nuances because Jack Johnson then refused to fight another African or another man of colour. Um, he only fought white challengers from there on in and locked out some other outstanding black boxes as a as a consequence so and you point out that 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 he wasn't an especially good boxer is that right um perhaps not one of the greats to to me he's he to me he wasn't one of the greats he he was a very defensive minded um fighter um he was um he was certainly more than enough for tommy burns but um yes he, he he wouldn't have he, he wouldn't have um, got past the great champions of the 60s and 70s or 80s. Can we just go back for a moment to, because I don't think we've explored it enough, uh, Joe Grimm's capacity to absorb pain. He mm. didn't fight to win. No, that's right. So he, he invented a contest within the contest. Everyone knew that he was going to lose the fight, but the question was, could he last the allocated time, so perhaps six rounds, um, or would the person manage to knock him out? And so as his fame rose, um, the greatest fighters in the world wanted to have a go to see if they could do it. So he fought Jack Johnson, for example, who knocked him down 17 times or 19 times or something, and he just kept on jumping back up. In, a, a, in an eight-week span, and no one ever has done this before or since. He fought the world heavyweight champion, the world lightweight champion, and the world welterweight champion. And he warmed up for those three fights by fight, by fighting the former world heavyweight champion. So it's just no one else has ever done that, and none of them could knock him out. But, but what, what do you think it is in us? And I'm, I'm assuming it would not change that wants to go and see that? Because you know what you're paying for. You're paying to see a man beaten to a pulp. It might not be in us who are here in this room today. <laughs> it might be. I don't know. No. Um, I think mm. that... <laughs> <laughs> Bloodsport fans here, anyone? <laughs> um, it still exists. Um in our community, it certainly exists in other cultures, uh, whether it be your cockfighting or, um, you know, bear baiting or... Well, I think we're a lot more queasy about this stuff than people have ever been before. Um, rightly or wrongly, it, it is an, an entertainment for people. Yeah. I have no doubt that if you organised a public hanging in Bank mm. Street... Mm a lot of people would turn up. Mm, I'm sure you're right. Or any other street. But, mm. you know, we're here. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for the same reasons. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also talk bizarrely, I guess only bizarrely because the book is full of um, 
beautifully bizarre side alleys. You talk about Ned Kelly and you had an obsession not with Ned... I don't know if you'd call it an obsession, but an attraction not to Ned Kelly but to Joe Byrne. Why did you settle on Joe and not Ned? Yeah. Um, I think um, the whole Ned Kelly thing's... It's so played out, but it's still... But growing up, it was huge for me. Um, and I grew up uh, in towns where... Not so far away from, from where he had been. And he was a fascination from as, as early as I can remember. And um, What was it about him, though? I know nothing about, about Ned, Joe Byrne. Oh, about Joe Byrne. So... Was he the cross-dresser? Uh, well... We don't know. <laughs> we think that they all were from time to time, right? Um, because that's how they got out of the the the, the, um, the, the wombat mountains and down in, into the towns. Um, and in fact, I see a book on on Joe's uh, desk up there about Kate Kelly, a, a new take on her story. Joe Byrne was so Ned was illiterate, um, and so were the other. Um, gang members as far as we know, whereas Joe Byrne was um, uh, was was literate and he, in fact, was the one who drafted the famous Geraldery letter. Mm -hmm. um, so any text that we have that we think comes from Ned Kelly was actually written by Joe Byrne. Um, and he, uh, as I say in the book, I, I think when I developed that thing about him, um, it was the f his proximity to this alpha male figure rather than being the alpha male figure himself. So he was Ned's main confidant and, and, and um, number two person. And it's that, that role, I suppose. that. So we, growing up in the superhero world, you were always more attracted to the sidekick. <laughs> to Robin. <laughs> to, to Robin. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> we know. <laughs> um, <laughs> one other thing that, that, that this book just pushes so many of my buttons in a very pleasant way um, you are very interested in the notion of uh, how, how much we can trust history and I'm fascinated by I did a, um, my thesis on collective memory and collective memory is this, this idea that in a culture we all coagulate in a way around an idea of how a certain thing happened and should be represented. We'll take Ned Kelly, for example, or Anzac. We all have a notion that we somehow agree on that that's what we're going to go with generally. What, what's your is, – is, is history – how fluid is history for you? Yeah, super fluid <laughs> and, and probably becoming more so um, as other voices are – listened to or 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 privileged um in my sort of short and undistinguished time in journalism one thing that i knew was that and you know this that if there's ever a story written about something that you know all about something that's happened in your street or something that you've seen or something you there'll always be a mistake in it <laughs> always and journalism's hard because you're having to pretend to be an expert on mm. one thing one day and another thing the next day. But um, history's full of those mistakes and I think they accrete and 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 build and, and grow and and we end up with with legends instead, you know, such as such as Anzac, such as Gallipoli. Um, 
No one was interested in Gallipoli until David Williamson wrote the film. No one. It, it, yeah. And uh, then that, that somehow, that's a really interesting, th- those things are called memory sites. They're individual things around which you can construct a sense of how we built our sense of ourselves. And mm. I reckon that film is a real memory site for Australia. Because prior to that, the Anzac parades were, you know, they were desultorily attended. But after that, we came to an agreement that it was a moment of great heroism and um, glory in uh, Australia. And the consequence is that many people think we won. Yeah, there's an amazing book, which I doubt is in Blarney books, although Blarney has every great book you can think of. It'll be. And it's a diary written by... Eon Idris, is that right? Eon, Eon Idris, Idris, yeah. Who was actually in Gallipoli and it's his diary um, and it is harrowing. It is extraordinary to to actually read what it was like in the trenches at that time with the maggots and the, the pieces of flesh flying around you and it, it was so miserable and, and so poorly conceived and so it was... It was it was a vision of hell um, and no soundtrack and and we if you ask the average person on the street what happened at Gallipoli or what it was like it, it's become this this scene of glory and triumph and it was it was dire yeah um, is there we're running out of time yes. but is there a novel or a book that you know you ought to have read that you haven't. Oh, oh, so many. Um, Give us a big one. What's the biggest one? 1984, I've never read. But then I've also never seen Star Wars. So I've never know. seen Star Wars either. <laughs> um, I've never read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> there'll be others. Um, Mothering Heights, I haven't read. Oh, my God. I've I've never <laughs> finished a book by Dickens. Sorry, oh my sorry everyone. God. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, so there's a lot. There is, <laughs> except that I worked out how long I'm likely to live. Yes. It's, it's not that much longer, and I worked out how many books I get through a year. Yeah, I've got so few books left. It's terrible. Oh. And people keep writing them. <laughs> <laughs> you need to stop reading modern stuff. Yeah. Get back to Wuthering Heights. Get back to Dickens. Yeah. Get on top of the 19th century, Michael. Jane Eyre's very good, but I... <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I always like to ask writers this question. What do you think is the most overrated virtue? <laughs> you have to say something. <laughs> Responsiveness. <laughs> um, I overrated virtue. Because there are a lot of virtues. That it are could be honesty, Robert. <laughs> it, there you go. I would prefer kindness. You know. There you go. I, I'm not wild about honesty. I think. Yeah, I agree with you. My o- most overrated virtue is piety. <laughs> Is that a virtue, though? Yes, it's one of the virtues. Oh, okay. And it's it, they're so boring. It's that Christian brothers <laughs> upbringing, oh, you know, them all. <laughs> um, 
that was wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much. <laughs> very, um, very I'm sure there are some questions from the uh, the audience. And please, I would this book is really extraordinary, really extraordinary. It's rich. It's um, it's, it's not upsetting particularly. Uh, it's not upsetting. That's the wrong word. It is confronting. There's no denying that. Because you're uh, – just simply because the power of your prose in describing a boxing match, for example, is very like those those uh, scenes in the Scorsese film. What's that Scorsese film? Raging Bull. Raging Bull, yes. They're very like that. It's They're just amazing. But also there's all that beautiful pastoral stuff and it's funny. That's the key thing. It's funny. Funny. Thank you, Robert. So, are there any questions from the audience? Yes. No. No. He, he, he died in 1931, I think, um, and he was in Australia, 08, 09. Um, I uncovered a few things. So, there's a thing, I don't know... <laughs> You look like a room full of big boxing fans. There's there's a thing <laughs> called um, Box Rec, which is the international record keeping for all boxing matches around the world ever. And so I was able to amend their record. I, I, I discovered that one fight they had on there never happened and that there was at least three fights in Australia that uh, did happen. So I was able to track them down just through old newspapers. And then he was interred in... Oh, interred. <laughs> Yes, that's correct. It, it is yes. interred. Well, interred means buried. Interned means put in a camp. Interned. He was interned in Claremont uh, Insane Asylum and I was able to find the, the records um, that they kept, um, the, the daily reports on him over there. But apart from that, no, there was just huge gaps and he fought 11 times in Australia in 18 months and so I don't know what else he did. And he travelled all the So he was in Sydney, then Melbourne, then Zeehan in Tassie, Ballarat, and then his next fight's in Perth, and then he finishes off in Charters Towers in, in Queensland. So how, I, how long, I don't know what else he did. Yeah. How long between bouts? Because um, he was so badly injured in almost every th- bout. Th- th- that's right, but he, he would routinely fight every week. Yeah. Wow. I mean, sometimes there's months between, but yeah. he, it, it, yeah, there, there was no gap. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they will. <laughs> the new concussion rules would oh, cramp his yeah, style. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he'd be sat down for a long time. <laughs> Any other question? Yes. Oh, when I'm writing. That's oh. a great question because you actually you you won a very important award for an essay. Yeah, um, I, I like the essay writing. I I had a really really nice job for a little while where I was writing profiles of people for a newspaper, and I'm endlessly interested in people, not so interested in sort of theories or huge global movements and um, and I thought that was a real privilege. I, I liked that a lot. Um, but, yeah, hacking away at essays, I think. Yeah. 
Oh, that's a lovely question. Um, short term, I'm writing, I'm working on an essay, a, a, a longish sort of essay, um, a book review type thing, which will be about, um, it's about a, a book called Amnesia Road that came out earlier this year by a man called Luke Stegerman. Um, and it's, I'm trying to think about being middle-aged white people living in Australia um, and how we write about the land at a time when we know that there's um, it's a very contested area. Um, so trying to look at a couple of other recent books, including Return to Uluru, which is up on Joe's um, Joe's table, which I wasn't wild about, sorry, <laughs> and um, some of Henry Reynolds' books. And then once that's done, I really don't know. It's actually time to do something creative again. Oh, clearly not Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> no, there isn't. Um, and it, it doesn't mean that they don't exist, but there's, there's none that I can point to. Um, <coughs> I don't know why, but uh, but certainly the pastoral bits of this book did remind me of Joseph Furphy. If, if, yeah, if there's any links, it might be to that sort of earlier Australian yeah. bush writing and sort of a little bit of tall tale stuff and also sort of the rural grind. Yeah. Oh, I have to ask you a question. Joe has insisted that I ask you a question. This is a book about pain, and you apparently grew up in Talangata. No, Any thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I was, I was born in Merbeen and then lived in Cobram, but did most of my growing up in Talangata um, with Joe Cannon, which is <laughs> why I've been allowed here today. Um, and, look, um, country towns are interesting places, as most of you would know, and... Country towns have their own um, their own ethos, and they're not all the same. And happily, I think country towns today aren't the same as they maybe were when Joe and I were growing up. Um, it was probably a great town for a lot of kids growing up there, and it, it wasn't a great town for Joe or or for me. Um, yeah, it is, you can just find a place where you don't fit in as well. Uh, and maybe that's in you or maybe it's in the town. But it, at that time, it was, a, it was probably a pretty hard, pretty hard place. And, yeah, I, I didn't feel like a face that fitted. Any more questions? For someone who doesn't like honesty, you're pretty bloody honest. <laughs> I just <laughs> said that, Robert. I, <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't think of any other virtues. Yeah, so. probably, uh, probably not true then. Um, <laughs> Well, well, finally, I would like to thank you for using a word that is not used sufficiently often. It's a word that, it's a beautiful word that means the gentle rustle of a wind through leaves. You probably don't remember it. Sithurism. Oh, my pleasure. And, <laughs> and I'd obviously it's, like it's to... hardly ever seen. I'd obviously like to thank you for your <laughs> great generosity and your skillful questioning. Nonsense. And... and and obviously Joe and obviously Dean. Um, I d think that 
towns that aren't Port Ferry don't understand that not everywhere has a bookshop like this. No, that's true. <laughs> that reaches out and yeah. embraces and, um, yeah, so, and thank you everyone for yes, hang, well, hanging around and listening. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you for this book because it was just a joy to read. Thank you. Thank you.